Earn your graduate degree at Fordham University, now offering an MA in Catholic Theology, a Master of Theological Studies, and a PhD in Theology. Fordham is a national leader in theological education, rooted in the Jesuit vision of social justice. Learn more at fordham.edu slash theologygrad. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. The Jesuits point out the precautionary measures had already been taken against Father Rupnik during the investigation. These are still in place today. This week, Jerry and I bring you some updates on the case of Jesuit artist Marco Rupnik, who was suspended from parts of his ministry after allegations of abuse. We'll talk about how we sort out the facts when there are so many conflicting stories. Immaculate Virgin, I would have liked to have brought to you today the thanksgiving of the Ukrainian people. Holy Father, now taking a moment, he's crying here. Up next, Pope Francis had to stop his prayer for Ukraine after becoming overwhelmed with emotion. We'll give you the reactions from Ukraine and from Russia. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from a cold and wet room, Colleen. Did you come in here with two coats on? I did, yes, yes. <laughs> So, Jerry, last week we spoke about a story that was just breaking, that the Jesuit father Marco Rupnik, who's a really well-known Catholic artist, had been suspended by the Jesuits after a preliminary investigation into allegations of sexual abuse. There have been a few updates since then. The Superior General of the Jesuits, Father Arturo Sosa, gave an interview to two religious media outlets in Portugal about this case. He mainly echoed the things that we reported last week, that the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith had received a complaint about Rubnik's ministry, that the DDF then asked the Jesuits to investigate the case, they in turn had someone from another religious order compile a report, that report was sent to the DDF, and the DDF ultimately closed the case because it was past the statute of limitations. Now, we said last week the Jesuits decided to keep the sanctions that they had put on Rupnik in place during the investigation, and those sanctions are banning him from spiritual direction, banning him from hearing confessions. And in this interview with the Portuguese news outlets, Father Sosa, the superior general, said that the measures were maintained because we want to go further into the matter to see how we can help everyone involved. Hi, Inside the Vatican listeners. This is Ricardo, the producer on this week's show. A day after we recorded this show, shocking new details emerged about this case. So before we continue with our conversation, here's what we know now. The Associated Press has now confirmed that in 2019, two years prior to the most recent allegations of abuse against Father Rupnik, He had been convicted and sanctioned by the Vatican for granting absolution in the confessional to a woman with whom he had engaged in sexual activity. A priest absolving an accomplice with whom he commits a sin is a serious crime according to church law, and it results in automatic excommunication, which can only be lifted if the priest admits to the crime, which Father Sosa said Father Rupnik did. In his comments to the Associated Press, Father Sosa also confirmed that Father Rupnik's ban from hearing confessions and offering spiritual direction was put in place in 2019, which was when he was automatically excommunicated. 
We ask you keep this new development in mind as you listen to this latest episode of Inside the Vatican, and we promise to keep you updated as more details unfold and statements are made. Now, back to the conversation with Jerry and Colleen. Now, I want to ask you, Jerry, about one of Sosa's comments that was widely criticized. He was asked why the Jesuit statement on the Ripnick case made no mention of victims. And he said, quote, because there is no process that says that here there is a victim and there is a victimizer. It was beyond the statute of limitations. There is no classification of victims. There is a suspicion of facts that went beyond the normal limits between adult people. Can you tell me what this means and what it tells us about the Jesuits' approach here? Well, there are several things here. First of all, we don't yet have a clear idea of what actually happened. We know now, not from the official sources of the doctrine of the faith or from the Jesuits, that a number of women religious, uh, some talk about nine, some say uh, there are others. Uh, even this fact is coming from outside sources, not the official sources. Mm. Secondly, some speak about abuse, psychological, physical, spiritual, spiritual abuse. Outside sources also speak about sexual abuse. Some run headlines that say, serial abuser. Mm -hmm. Well, what is missing here is the central key facts. Who said what to whom? In other words, when were the first allegations made? We're not sure of that. Mm -hmm. Who made the allegations? What was the specific nature of the allegations? These are all points with question marks. So the timeline is missing, mm -hmm. substantial information is missing in the official accounts, the statements from the Jesuits and from the Vatican's Doctrine of the Faith uh, dicastery. Now, we have heard from one woman who said that she was among the complainants. She gave an anonymous interview to Il Messaggero, which is an Italian newspaper. What did she have to say? Well, there are two women, and I'm not sure whether they are the same. Mm -hmm. One woman gave a letter that she said she sent to the Pope. The messaggero mentions a woman whom they give a pseudonym to and says that she was distressed and uh, she, she doesn't explicitly say what happened, but she does say that there was she was part of the community in Slovenia, where the original group of nuns called the Loyola community and where Father Rupnik was working in the 1980s and in the beginning of the 1990s. Which is the community that a lot of these Italian media reports have said was a site of Rupnik's abuse of whatever kind. He was obviously closer to some of the sisters in the community, but it seems to have experienced a lot of t internal tensions. It ended up by Father Rupnik moving away from that community, creating the Aletic community in Rome, where some of the sisters from that community in Slovenia came and worked with him. The picture is, let's say, it's emerging. Mm -hmm. 
There are three real blog sites which have provided the information. The first blog site broke the story on December the 1st. It's a blog site, Celeri Non Possumus. In other words, the count keeps silent. It's run by a young 26-year-old Italian lawyer. The second uh, blog site is one called Missen Latina, the Mass in Latin, which adds a little. But a more substantial information comes in a blog site called Left, which was set up to be a place where young people who had been abused by clerics in Italy could go and make their denunciations. And it seems that one of the sisters who had been in the community in Slovenia came to this blog site and they published a letter, the letter that she sent to the Pope. Mm -hmm. And uh, she speaks about her distress. Uh, She said that at a certain point, I felt desperate. I had to leave the community and I even contemplated death. In other words, suicidal. But she says, what worries me now is the situation of the young, vulnerable people who joined this community. That's why I'm drawing it to your attention. What did Father Rupnik do? There seems to be consistency in saying that there was an abuse of power, psychological, so what Francis would call it, perhaps abuse of conscience. There is a suggestion that he was condemned, that he may have been excommunicated for absolving an accomplice in confession. But this comes from one source, as far as I can see, and it's difficult to distinguish what is fact and what is fiction. There's one thing that's very clear, is that women have suffered in this whole story. There are sufficient statements now, I think I've seen one report from two women, another from one woman, another from one woman. So it's very clear that women have suffered in the midst of this. This picture was not as clear when we talked last week. I think it would be helpful to our listeners if we could talk briefly, have kind of a meta conversation about how we determine whether a source is reliable or not. I heard you say earlier, you know, we have these official comments from the Jesuits. We're waiting for more maybe from the DDF or maybe more from the Jesuits. And then we have these testimonies from these women, which we seem to be taking as credible. Can you just explain the logic behind how you determine what is credible and what is not? First of all, I I work with what is on the record by the Vatican Department and by the Jesuits, the the general of the Jesuits and the, the Jesuit who's been in charge of this process. Secondly, you have three sources that I mentioned with our blog sites, uh, at least two of which have not been friendly towards Francis. In, they've been very critical of how Francis has been leading the church. Hmm. But does that affect their credibility? No, they seem to have access to information. But uh, the question is, is their information completely trustworthy? Mm-hmm. They seem to argue that they have sure sources, but we don't know what the sources are. And the things that would make that more certain would be if they had like, you know, internal documents or something from the DDF that they had published, but they haven't. There is no document published except the letter from this former sister to the Pope, which was published in the site left. And Jerry, I don't think people know this, but, you know, when you're reporting on the Vatican beat or even on the church, 
you see a lot of these letters that people have say they've sent to the Pope. The big question is always whether the Pope ever saw it or who saw it. The presumption when they say they write to the Pope that the letters actually got to him. A senior official told me recently the Pope gets about 5,000 letters a week. Now, what happens? The letters arrive. And unless you actually put it into his hand or give it to his secretary, you, you have no certainty that it's actually reached him. Yeah, it's always a big deal when people have photos of an envelope being handed to the Pope. One last thing about the sources and especially about these women's testimonies is, one, these were not out yet when those official statements came out that we reported on last week. And so obviously they weren't going to be accommodated. They weren't going to be incorporated into uh, the official statements. And two, the reason that we are willing to believe them, especially like the one that's in Il Messaggero, is that news outlets, newspapers that have teams of editors, unlike blogs that are usually just one person, have verification processes. So if you're going to run an anonymous interview, it's a big deal. You're going to have editors checking in to make sure this is legit. Uh, and so that's very different from having one person on a blog who can you know, write what they want and they don't have somebody fact-checking them or a team fact-checking them. We don't have any names behind the allegations. Which is standard. You know, usually usually victims are not coming out unless they want to. That, that is correct. Certainly in the questions of abuse, it's, it's uh, pretty standard. Mm -hmm. What is clear, as I said, is that a number of women seem to have suffered, and suffered deeply, and one at least says she was tempted to commit suicide. Others left the order. So there was a real spiritual distress among these people. And I think uh, the information that's coming out at that level is very disturbing. Mm -hmm. But it is not mentioned in either the statement from the Vatican Office for the Doctrine of the Faith or in the statement from the Jesuit General. The Jesuit General, Father Sosa, speaks, that he says, there are no victims mentioned or victimizers. That was really strange to me. Well, yes, I think, uh, I don't want to interpret him, but I, I think uh, it's interesting that the statement that came out was that there was no minors involved. Yes. So uh, th this has been the big concern of most of the Vatican's attempt to deal with abuse. It's been a question of minors. But of course, we know that Adults can be victims as well. Absolutely, yeah. In power situations. Mm -hmm. And when you have a spiritual director, that's that's a person who's in a position of power over you. Here is a priest who was well-known, enjoyed a lot of confidence, and now who's being accused of many things, uh, but yet we're still waiting for clarity. He hasn't been removed from the priesthood. He, he has been suspended from doing certain kinds of ministry. So does that speak about the nature of the charges against him? Well, this is what Father General Sosa says. He says that it's proportionate to what the investigation found. The other really big headline in the past week about this case was that Father Hans Zollner, who is the Vatican's top expert on preventing sexual abuse, who is himself a Jesuit, came out publicly criticizing how this case was handled. So he called for transparency in the church, including from the Jesuits on this, and said that this case, quote, raised questions that, as far as I can see, can only be answered by the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith. 
Can you walk me through what questions he's referring to? First of all, the timeline. When were the allegations made? To whom were they made? What action was taken on them? Mm-hmm. Were the people who made the allegations contacted? How far up the line of authority did these allegations go? Mm-hmm. Was Father Rupnik questioned? That's one set, and that's for the doctrine of the faith. A second question will be, what did the Jesuits know? There's also the question of what happened inside the Vatican. We often see in abuse cases, Pope Francis opened this possibility for the statute of limitations to be waived. Usually it's 20 years. They found often that it takes people longer to process things that come forward. In this case, the statute of limitations was not waived and was instead used to close the case. So there's the question of who made that call? not to waive the statute of limitations. Yes, and was the decision made based on an evaluation that these were of a lesser gravity? We don't know. Secondly, Father Sosa said people have a right to their privacy. I've seen many situations where, and I, I know several now, right now, where the victims do not want to be identified in public do not wish to come out in public. Some wish to protect themselves, their families, if they are married. Uh, There are many reasons. So to put everything in the public domain is not necessarily the best way forward in certain situations. The call at this point is obviously with the victims. If the victims don't want to be identified, if they don't want their case to be come out, It's one thing. If they want the news to come out that this person is a perpetrator, but they don't want to have themselves identified, this is another situation. So, Jerry, there are a lot of unanswered questions here. It is likely that we'll hear more on this, either from the Vatican or the Jesuits, as time goes on. So we will keep our listeners updated on Inside the Vatican and on our website, americamagazine.org. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about Pope Francis's moving moment at the Spanish Steps when he was overwhelmed with emotion while praying for Ukraine. Stay with us. On Thursday of last week, Pope Francis prayed at the Spanish Steps in Rome for the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. The last couple years, he's done this really early in the morning because of COVID concerns, but this year he was back to leading the prayer in the afternoon. Now, the Pope was overwhelmed with emotion and had to stop his prayer for a minute while praying for Ukraine. He said, Immaculate Virgin, today I would have wanted to bring you the thanks of the Ukrainian people. Popolo ucraino, 
Instead, once again, I have to bring you the pleas of children, of the elderly, of fathers and mothers, of the young people of that martyred land, which is suffering so much. Jerry, what's been the response to this display of emotion, specifically from Russia and Ukraine? Well, from the Ukraine, they were really touched by this because the foreign minister said in an interview with Vatican Radio that the Pope's words and his expression of emotion are powerful. Mm -hmm. Remember, this is a nation now where frequently they're without electricity, without water, without heat. There's snow. The temperatures are going below zero. And Russia is targeting day by day the electricity power stations, the water supplies, making life as miserable as possible for the people of Ukraine. Yeah, and if our listeners um, wanted to try to make a difference for some of these Ukrainians, um, you can go back to our show notes from last week. The episode description has information on how to donate thermal vests via the Vatican's Almoner's office. What about Russia? How did they respond to this? Well, they didn't, obviously, they would not be interested in publicizing that the Pope was weeping for the situation in Ukraine. In fact, they're quite selective about what they published from Rome. And uh, there's no, I don't have any evidence that in the official line that they have published anything. But what did happen was yesterday, December 12th, Cardinal Parolin was at the presentation of a book about the former mayor of Florence, Giorgio Lepira. Cardinal Perlin, we should mention, is the Vatican's Secretary of State. And afterwards, uh, he was questioned by journalists about the situation in Ukraine and the possibility of peace. And he says, well, we're trying what we can to try to advance peace. We've made very clear that the Vatican is willing to host peace talks. And he said, I consider it, it's an uh, a suitable situation, an appropriate situation. And almost immediately retort from Russia. This spokeswoman for the foreign ministry, Maria Karakova, I think is her name, she said, absolutely not appropriate. And she uh, put on Telegram that, you know, the Pope's remarks in the interview with America, she doesn't mention America, but the Pope's re- remarks regarding the Buryati and the Chechens uh, more or less show very clearly that that the Vatican is not a suitable place. Although he did all he could for months to try not to offend in any way Russia or its leaders, when he starts speaking about the martyred nation of Ukraine and that there are those who do the martyring, this really provokes Russia in a big way. And then Russia doesn't admit they've invaded the country, and the Pope says it's very clear who has invaded. There was also a piece in the Wall Street Journal this week from a Buryati group denouncing the Pope's comments about their specific group as being particularly cruel in the war. So, yeah, I thought we should mention that. I I read this, and they said two things. They said, first of all, we as ethnic minorities... We have suffered for a very long time from Russian imperialism. Mm-hmm. And we have been used, I think they're referring to their soldiers, for the imperialistic ambitions of Russia. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the fact is, of course, they have been in Bucha. They have been down in the east, in, in the Donbass. They have been very violent, very cruel. This is the people who have suffered, who have been saying this. But, of course, R- Russia now jumps to their defense because it's a good pretext. I've said in the past that what upset the Russians more, they used the question, his comment on the Buryati and the Chechens. But what upset the most was him saying, you are the people who are martyring the Ukrainian people. And and clearly the Russians think that he has moved against them. Jerry, going back to the the Pope's being moved to tears at at this prayer on Thursday last week, uh, I was surprised to learn that it's actually not that common to see this kind of display of emotion from a Pope. You've been covering the Vatican since the mid-80s. I was wondering if you remember another time when a Pope has broken down crying in public this way. Well, Francis got very emotional during the Synod for young people when, for the first time, Chinese bishops participated in a synod. Since the synod was set up more than 50 years ago now, no Chinese bishops has ever participated. And so Francis, in his homily, mentioned this fact and then choked up with emotion. Then the other time that I remember distinctly was when Paul VI in 1978 went really into crisis almost, giving a homily for the funeral of Aldo Moro, the Prime Minister of Italy, who'd been kidnapped and executed 50 days later by the Red Brigades. He was found in the car executed on 9th of May, 1978. Buono, mite, saggio, innocente ed amico. Which is not that long before Paul VI dies. Paul VI died three months later. But remember, Paul VI had known Moro since he was chaplain to the university students in Rome. And he was very close to Moro. When Moro was kidnapped by the Red Brigades, he offered to give himself in exchange for Moro. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yes. And so at the Requiem Mass, when he was preaching, he said, and he got very emotional, he said, God, you didn't listen to my prayer. He had prayed publicly for the release of the... And that was really another moment that's very like what we saw at the Spanish Steps with Pope Francis last Thursday. Moro was the close friend of Paul VI, so he was speaking for his friend. He was expressing emotion and upset. Francis feels closely identified with the Ukrainian people. And in fact, we now know that he's spoken, I think, 129 or 130 times in a war that is now 293 days. So this is almost once every Two days he's speaking uh, on this war. And he says, I carry this in my heart. I carry this suffering of these martyred people. He feels deeply about it. We've seen him embrace the flag of Ukraine at one of public audience. We've seen him take children 
from Ukraine around. We've seen him meet the wives of the soldiers who were in the ads of plant in Mariupol. All right, Jerry, that is about all the time we have for this week. But thanks. I, I appreciate getting kind of the historical context for this display of emotion from you and also talking through kind of our our journalistic approach on covering abuse cases in the Ripning case. I think that's really important for our listeners to understand. And I will talk with you next week. Thank you, Colleen, and very good Christmas preparations to our audience. And I hope some of them will send those warm thermic vests to the Almoner. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Ricardo da Silva. Audio editing by Kevin Christopher Robles. Production assistance from Cristobal Spielman at America Media and Robert Balasser at the Jesuit Curia in Rome. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. To keep up with the latest Vatican coverage from America Magazine, follow us on Twitter at INSDE Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. And you can find all of our coverage at americamagazine.org. While you're there, please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America Magazine. It's easy to do, and it's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time.